got an exciting, exciting topic to work through. God has been working with us through the book of Revelation, or the book of, of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus. Today is our 89th message in the book of Exodus. 89 weeks God's been walking us through it, and it has been such a challenge and such an exciting thing for, I know for me, and I hope for you guys as well. But as we walk through this book of Exodus, what's so cool about it is the fact that this morning, now last week we were in the outer court, okay, we are in the outer court of the tabernacle, and one of the things we looked at was the fact is, in the outer court, we were looking at the different things that are in the outer court. Well, today we're going to look at the outer court itself. We're going to look at it, what it is and what it represents. And what's so neat about the fact is, as we look back on the tabernacle and what its purpose is, right? The tabernacle's purpose was all about restoring a, a, a close communion with humanity. God wanted a place where he could dwell with humanity. And what we find is, as these, uh, and then that, that fellowship was broken. We remember back in Genesis chapter number three, what happened in regards to the fellowship? God created man for perfect fellowship with him. And then Adam and Eve, what happened? They made a bad choice with some fruit, right? Affected all of us, affected all of history. And what happened was that fellowship was broken. And what we see in the tabernacle, this is a physical representation. God's creating a place where that fellowship can be restored temporarily. But as we've looked at this thing, what we've noticed is the fact is these Israelites, now we're at this point in time, we're at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, this is in the Sinai Peninsula. And what we have is this group of Israelites that have gathered here and they're working feverishly. But what we've seen with the Israelites is since we've traveled with them from Egypt, is they have struggled. They have struggled. And what happens is the Israelite, if you're not aware of this, the Israelite is a picture of the individual believer. It's a picture of us. So as we look at the Israelites, what we see they struggle with is obedience. They are a disobedient people. In fact, in the Bible, nine different times the Bible calls them stiff-necked. Has anybody ever like, tried to pull a horse that doesn't want to go somewhere it wants to go? Like, or it wants to go, and you're pulling on its horse, and you're like, man, his neck is stiff, and you're like, dang, dude, whoa. It's a picture of these Israelites. And guess who it's describing? Us. Us. Who's ever been stiff-necked? Hello, probably this morning we were stiff-necked, right? <laughs> so we struggle with this issue of stubbornness. That's just kind of who we are. And what we find as we've walked through this, this walk with the, with, through, the, through, the, through the Scriptures, what we see is here, the Israelites are at this point in time, they're actually on target. They're doing the right things. They're being obedient. And what they're doing is they're meticulously following the instructions given to them by God on how to build the tabernacle. And what we find is when we're working our way through this, they have been meticulous in following not only God in doing the work, but also making the donations. All the raw materials that were given were given by the Israelites. These things were willingly given by a group. And this whole body is kind of coming together to do what God's called them to do. It's an exciting time for the Israelites because they're actually serving the Lord. So what we're going to see today is actually we're going to go deeper into that outer court and what it represents. It's a really, really, really cool picture. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter number 38, verses 9 through 20. But this message this morning is called, Be Ye Holy. Let's pray over the message. God, thank you for today. God, for the opportunity you've given us to be in your house. God, thank you for believers that are here, Lord. Thank you for, Lord, those that might be lost watching us online or maybe in this service, God. And I remember 19 years ago when someone asked me a question, if I knew for sure I was on my way to heaven. And I said, I hope so. And Lord, thank you for your grace to change my eternity and change so many of our eternities. God, as we look into the tabernacle today, help our eyes be open. Help our hearts be open. Help our minds be receptive to the truth of what you reveal to us. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray that you'll bless and guide it. Lord, you've spoken to me, and I'd ask now that you would speak through me. Help the human element to be removed from this message that we might just hear, thus saith the Lord. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we work our way into this scripture, there's a lot to see, so bear with me, okay? When we first started this church, I used to, I used to write the messages that were six pages. Today, 14, praise the Lord. So bear with me. <laughs> Listen quick, and I'm going to do my best. I won't try not to talk too fast, because I know Imr uh, Shimron is here for the very first time, and she's originally from Iraq, and she's trying to interpret this in English the best she can. So you guys do good. Edouard as well. God bless you guys. I love you all. Thank you are here. So Exodus 38, verse number 9. says, And he made the court on the south side, southward the hangings of the court, were fine twined linen and hundred cubits. This is talking about the outer wall of the tabernacle. We see, that we see 100 cubits. Now, that's 150 feet long. This is fine twine linen. This is going to be something that would appear, basically to us, it would basically be like a white fabric. And we'll see in verse 18 when we get there that it's actually this wall not only being 150 feet long, it's seven and a half feet tall. Now, this is supposed to be a barrier. What it does is it separates those that are seeking God 
from those who are not seeking God. Do we see a picture in that, right? There is a picture. All what we find in this tabernacle is it is loaded with imagery like nothing else in Scripture. And what we'll see as we walk our way through this is it's a picture of the holy sanctification of the believer coming out of the world and seeking the Lord. And there's a stair-step process into sanctification. What we see in 2 Corinthians 6.17, how are we sanctified as believers today? Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. God welcomes us in to Him. God wants a fellowship with us. So the common people, guess what? They were allowed in the outer court. This was a part of the, a part of the, of the, of the, of the uh, tabernacle they could be in. And there were three different sections, right? There's the outer court. Then we have the holy place, right, which is inside of the tabernacle proper. Then there's the most holy or the holy of holies, which is where the ark of the covenant would rest. And what we see here is that last two sections, those were set aside only for the priests. Only the priest, the common man, was not allowed to go in. So what we'll see is this white fabric that's all the way around the outside of this thing. It's going to make a stark contrast. If you were standing back on a mountain looking down at the encampment, what you would see was all these dark tents, right? And what they would do is they would take skins, animal skins, which made them waterproof, and they string those over their tents. So all these dark, nasty-looking tents, and then we'd see this white rectangle sitting in the midst of it. That's the imagery we'd have. Verse number 10 says this, their pillars were 20 and their brazen sockets. Now a, bra a socket is a base plate, like a base plate, something, a foundation that that piece of uh, wood would sit into. And it says, and they were 20 and the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. So it says that the hooks that we'll see on those things, they're also going to be made of, they'll be made of silver and so are the caps. So these 20 pillars, now what's interesting is they follow the same pattern, okay? So if we look at these, what it basically like, this is a wooden post. This here is made of brass, and this here is silver. And these hooks in between are silver as well. And what we'll find is that there's a pattern that God establishes in his development of the, proper, the tabernacle proper. Because remember, there, were 20 there was 20 boards in the tabernacle. Now on the outside of this thing, we see 20 pillars, the Bible says. And they're basically just like a long, tall pole. So these simple wooden poles... They're going to be capped with silver, and they're going to have a mounted into a brass, into a base that is brass. Now, the inner pillars, the ones that we looked at inside, those boards that were inside of the tabernacle. Remember, everything inside the tabernacle. What, do you remember what, 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 what metal was used? Gold, right? Gold. Inside of the tabernacle proper, everything is gold. Why? Because that is a picture of heaven. That is a picture of God's deity, right? So gold is a picture of that. And what we saw inside there was it were wooden boards that were encased in gold. And what it was was a picture of humanity and deity being brought together. When you and I get saved, the Bible says what, that this corruptible must put on incorruption, right? And then we looked at the picture of Jesus Christ and the fact of man and God in one. So we saw that in the boards, but now we're outside and these are just wooden poles. Why? Because they are a picture of humanity. Wood is a representation of humanity because why? Wood is corruptible. Wood rots. Wood comes from the earth and it destroys and is dissolved. So that wood is a picture of that. But then it's capped with silver. Does anybody remember what silver represents? Redemption. Okay. So gold represents deity. Silver represents redemption. And then brass represents judgment. Right? Judgment. So we're dealing with a place that is a base plate. These things, the only way these wooden poles, when they come in contact with the earth, Guess what? When you and I come in contact with earth, guess what it causes? Judgment. Judgment, right? That's what's pictured in these wooden poles. So as we work our way through this, we see here the fact that even the little hooks. Now, remember, it says that the, 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 the tops, the fillets, and the hooks are of silver. Now, remember, that white fabric, that represents sanctity. That represents that, that, uh, the, uh, the sanctified body of Christ. That represents God's separation from the world. So the way that you and I are sanctified, right, is by coming out of the world. And what we see is the only way that humanity can have contact with that sanctification is through redemption. You and I can only be sanctified through redemption. Through redemption. So we saw that in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. It says, Uch, and it says, And such were some of you, right? But ye were washed, you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So even these little hooks, these little silver hooks are literally teaching us a much bigger thing. They're talking about salvation. How in the world does this corruptible man have come in contact with sanctification? It's by way of redemption. So even in that, God is simultaneously speaking to them 
through teaching them through these materials, but he's also teaching us. And it's so cool because what happens? God is talking about his second, his first coming. He's prophesying of his first coming when he would come to redeem the world, right? That's his purpose for coming. That, that redemption, guys, that's over 1,500 years in the future. So when we're sitting here and they're looking at this silver hook, they don't know. You'll hear people say, well, the people in the Old Testament are looking forward to the cross. They don't know anything about the cross. When those men remember what Isaiah would write and they would make these prophecies, they didn't understand what they were writing, but God did. And He said, I'm going to use your words to speak into eternity, to speak into the future to the hearts of men and women and boys and girls that are going to be broken. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to be seeking me. And I'm going to hide myself throughout this word, throughout it. And from the very beginning of this Bible to the very end, man, God is speaking of Himself. What did Jesus say whenever he, the Bible talks about whenever he was here on earth for the 40 days. And what does it say? He said he taught them of himself in the word. He said, let me take you back to the book of Genesis and let me show you me. Let me take you to Exodus. Let me show you me. Let me take you to Leviticus and show me me. Let me show you in Joshua. Let me show you in Leviticus. Let me teach you all the way through the Bible. Every prophet was talking about me. Every part of it is about me. And we think the Bible is about us because we're so self-centered. God says it's not about us. It's about him. Back to the court. Verse 11 says this, And for the north side, and the hangings were in hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their sockets of brass twenty, and the hooks of the pillars, their fillets of silver. We see here that this is an exact copy of the north wall. These are identical. They face one another. And you see that in the image there. So Bezalel and the crew, they're working and they're following God's instructions. They're being led of the Lord to do what God's called them to do. And I want you to listen to what Paul says about following God and doing God's work. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Let all things be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. That's God's design. And what stands out as we look at this is the symmetry. The incredible symmetry that we've witnessed in the tabernacle. God is so precise on exactly what he uses, how he uses it, and how it's to be established. The order of things. Always, always God works in order. And what we'll find is the natural world. It does not work in order. There is disorder in the natural world. Because guess what? It's not of God. We look at this in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches and the saints. So the confusion, the disorder, and the fear that you and I see prevalent in our world today, you know what it tells us? They're not following God. It clearly indicates if they were following God, things would be decently and in order. But because they're not, we see all this stuff going on. It's an indication of rebellion. Disorder is an indication of rebellion. If you've ever seen it in your own home, when you deal with your own children, we try to put order in their lives, but when they become disobedient, what do they do? They introduce chaos. Who's ever experienced some chaos with your kids? Hello. I mean, my goodness gracious. They just go hand in hand, don't they? So what I'm saying, I'm not saying that there cannot be order in the natural world. There certainly can be. But what you understand is when it comes to the deep things of God and the deep things of understanding, there's chaos. Because what is the natural world always doing? It's asking questions. Why am I here? Right? What's my purpose? Where did I come from? And where am I going? And what does the world offer? Guesses, theories, and more questions. So there are no answers there, right? More questions. But as a Christian, what's beautiful? Well, you know what? I look and I go, where? Well, you know, why am I here? What's the purpose? Why am I here? I am here to reach the lost world for my Savior. What's the purpose of my life? To bring glory to God's name, right? Where did I come from? I am beautifully, perfectly made by God, man. He created me in His image. And where am I going? I'm going to be in eternity with my Savior. So we have the answers, right? And all the confusion of the world is so you go with God, it's God's people, it should not be so. But what we find is in our world today, all the chaos and all the confusion and all the garbage we see being spouted between people, it's an indication of confusion. And guess what? A lot of those people claim to be Christians. Amen. They're online right now raging against one another. And that should not be so. Right. Should not be so. Because you know what? No matter someone's, uh, you know, whether their uh, their political, social, or economic viewpoint, our job doesn't change. It doesn't matter what they believe. It is irrelevant. They're a soul who needs Christ. And if someone has Jesus in their life, guess what? The chaos and all the disorder, guess what God does? He brings order. And suddenly, instead of being full of questions and anger and wanting to lash out and attack people who are trying to care for them, they suddenly start to see it with new eyes and suddenly have appreciation. Maybe some of us came from there. 
Maybe we used to be critical of Christians. Right? I know I was. I was lost for 34 years of my life. I lived a secular life. I knew nothing about God. Christmas to me was Santa Claus. Easter was the Easter Bunny. That's all I knew. So when people talked about Christians, I'm like, yeah, whatever. If you need a crutch, go for it. Whatever, losers. That was the attitude I had. But I'm telling you, when God came into my heart, he changed my perspective. Suddenly, I could see things completely differently. And people that I saw that had been kind in my life, instead of ridiculing them like I did in the past, suddenly I had such a great thanks for the fact that they offered me such kindness. My grandmother was a saved person. My grandmother, she was what you would call a, a sledgehammer. You've heard some people that are a velvet hammer. She was a sledgehammer made of concrete and steel. She was like, uh, just so you know, baby, you're going to hell. Boom. That's the way she would, that's the way she communicated, you know? So you're just like, oh, I'm going to hell. That's all I ever heard from you. You're going to hell, right? So I'm a man, oh man. But I, now that I understand what she was telling me, she was telling the truth, but she didn't know how to share the truth in love, right? She not to share the truth in judgment. And that's not our role. Our job is to love. So when I deal with people in the world, my job is to love them. Listen to this. We're supposed to introduce peace. The peace of God through his love. 1 John 4, 16 through 18 says this, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. And God in him, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Man, we're in this world for a purpose. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath no, no torment, he, hath for, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. Guys, we are replacing fear with love. Conflict with peace and turning chaos into order when we share the truth of God's word. So as we look at the incredible intricacies of the tabernacle, what I want to know is pay attention to is the symmetry with how it's made. And it behooves us to think about our natural world, the things around us that we see that God has created. The same order that we see in the tabernacle, guess what? It carries over. It carries over into our natural world. And we've got to be willing to realize, just to straighten it out, this world did not create itself from a cataclysmic explosion in space. And magically, this incredibly ordered system just happened to create itself. That is absolutely insane, and it goes against the laws of science. But what we see is we look around the world around us, there is incredible order. And what I want us to do this morning is just look at one specific one. Just one. Out of thousands of examples, we're going to look at just one. Just touch on it real quickly. Understand, the order that we see right in the world. Now, for the unbeliever, the proof of God's existence is the order of the universe. Right? That's a beautiful, perfect, beautiful, beautiful thing. It reveals itself to them. But see, for the believer, ours is found in the Word. The proof for me does not need... Can I see it in the surroundings of the world? Yes, absolutely. Does it help me? Sure. But for the unbeliever, the Bible says that they're without excuse because they can see what God's created. But see, there's a term, the Latin term, it says sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means my scripture alone. What it means is this. That this is the sole scriptural, this is an infallible source of knowledge and authority to the Christian. That we can stand on the word and all faith and practice is based upon this word. So if that's the truth for us and we're truly Christians, let's see what the authority says in Colossians 1 verses 16 through 22. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him for him. Okay, so we're going by who's the him? For he is before all things, by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first one resurrected, praise the Lord, through the power, the raising power of the Spirit of God, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, we have no doubt who that is, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you... And you knew that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works lost. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Amen. This scripture clearly tells us that the creator is Jesus Christ. So when you go to Genesis 1 and 1 and you see God creating through speaking the world into existence, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this natural world, man, it is incredible when we look at its design. And as I said, we're going to look at just one of them. I want us just to think about our atmosphere. Our atmosphere. What does our atmosphere do? It protects us from the sun. 
Without the atmosphere, we'd all be burned up, right? We wouldn't have air to breathe. It does an incredible amount. It even protects us from asteroids and all kinds of crazy things. But if we think about something we take for granted, which we're taking for granted right now, the air we breathe, the air we breathe, it is specifically oriented in oxygen, CO2, and nitrogen. There's all these specific amounts that you and I need and require to live. And what is amazing is that exactly what you and I need to breathe is exactly what plants create. And exactly what a plant needs to live is exactly what we exhale. Yeah. So the plant can't live without the animal, and the animal can't live without the plant. And then go back and take it even another step further. The fact that we must consume, right? When you breathe that oxygen, your body creates glucose. Guess what? When they bring in CO2, what do they do? They produce glucose. And guess what? The two work together. When your body dies and goes to the ground, guess who eats you? Plants. And guess what? What do we do when we harvest our vegetables? We're eating plants. A cycle that is unbelievable. And as we look at the tabernacle, it's just a picture of the complexity of God and the order of God. The order and complexity in the materials used, the layout and the design, the specific construction methods to be used, and the purpose of each specific part. Now, the specific parts are to be used practically, but what we've learned over the last weeks is prophetically as well. Yeah. God's teaching them and teaching us at the same time. Verse 12, for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10, and their sockets 10, the hooks of the pillars, and their fillets of silver. So this is the back wall of the outer court. And what we see here is the same consistent design. Verse 13, and for the east side, eastward, 50 cubits. So the eastern and the western walls are going to be 75 feet long. So this is 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Verse 14, the hangings of the one side of the gate were 15 cubits. Their pillars three and their sockets three. And for the other side of the, of the court gate, on this side and that hand, there were hangings of 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three. So it's telling you, look, what you've got is on this eastern wall, there's 22 and a half feet of the fabric and linen that looks just like everything else. It follows the exact same pattern, but it's going to leave a space in the middle. There's a space in the middle. And this perfectly, what's so cool that this, there's a 30-foot opening right here in the wall. And verse number 16 says this, And all the hangings of the court round about were a fine twine linen. It says, look, so everything in this whole structure is going to be made of that fine twine linen, that white fabric. And the sockets for the pillars were of brass, the base plates, the hooks of the pillars and their sockets and their fillets of silver, and the overlaying of their chapters of silver, and the pillars of the, cupboard, uh, of the court were filleted with silver. So we see these wooden poles sitting on these brass plates with silver on top. Now minus the, the, the gate we see here is kind of an image of what it may look like. All right? So all the way around, a consistency to it, a consistency to it. And we can certainly see that it's designed with, spec with great specifications. But the portion that's going to be in the middle, that in the middle is going to be different. Verse number 18 says this, and the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen and 20 cubits was the length and the height and the breadth was five cubits answerable to the hangings of the court. So we have a 30 foot entrance here. And what's interesting about it is it's going to mimic the very same thing. It's going to mimic the door of the tabernacle as you go into the tabernacle proper. And it, guess what? It also mimics the veil, the veil. They're made of the same colors, the same fine twine linen, the same embroidery. And what we see here is this gives us a picture of something that God always moves from the east to the west. Scripturally, you can find it again and again and again and again. God moves east to west. Now, in our physical world, which is really, really neat, God gives us a beautiful picture of this every single day. What rises in the east? The sun, right? And does it ever travel east? Nope. It always travels west. It goes from the east to the west. It's a daily reminder. The dawn is a daily reminder of the sun going across the earth, showing us God always travels east to west. And what's so neat about that is, guess what? You and I right now, we are in a spiritual night. We're in a spiritual night. When Jesus proclaimed himself, what did he say? He said, I am the light of the world. So when Jesus ascended, the light of the world left the world. Proverbs teaches us that we're supposed to shine as lights, right? We're supposed to shine as lights. We're a picture of the moon. We're a picture of the moon. What does the moon do? The moon has no light of its own. It's a dead rock. But what does it do at nighttime? It reflects light into the darkness, right? You and I are supposed to reflect light into the darkness. So a picture of Jesus in the sun, in the S-U-N. But I want you to listen to this. Think about this. Now, this is in regards to the second coming. I want you to listen to Malachi 4.2. That, that, that spiritual night is going to be on this earth until Jesus returns, 
right? When he returns to this earth in his second coming, that night will come to an end. There will be a dawn. There will be a dawn. Malachi 3.2 says this, But who may abide the day of his coming? We know what that is. And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. Talking about the intense brightness, like fuller's soap, a bright white. Malachi 4 verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, all those that stand against God, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. They'll be cut down. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Look at how it's spelled. The Son of Righteousness. That's capital S-U-N. Jesus is saying when you look at your Son, you are picturing my return. I have hid myself throughout this creation. If you'll just have eyes to see. That's why the Bible says we are out without excuse. God is awesome, man. Pointing to His second coming. And if you study this Bible long enough, you'll realize that the theme of this Bible is not humanity. It's not salvation. It's not about the sacrifice. The theme of this book is the second coming of Christ. That is the day when Jesus will receive the glory that His Father wants Him to have. It's not His death on the cross. That was a horrible day. But it had to happen for our sake. So we see this incredible Picture. In order to enter God's dwelling, we would be forced to model the way that He moves east to west. The tabernacle makes that clear. When we're going to go all the way through, every veil you're going to go through, you're going east to west, east to west. What did Jesus say when He was here in Mark 8, 34? He said, follow me. Follow me. Now we know in Isaiah 53, 6, the Bible says that all we like of sheep have gone astray. We have gone our own way. So we're going our way. And God's saying, no, 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 I need you to go my way. Now how do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us, Psalm 119, verse 105 says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A light unto my path. We think back to Moses, right? We studied Moses literally over a year and a half ago. We saw where Moses was in the beginning of this story. And what happened when God came to Moses and he called him in Exodus 4? What happened? Moses wasn't like, heck yeah, Lord, let's do this. I'm all about it. Let's rock, man. No. He was like, uh... I'm slow a tongue, kind of not that smart. You know, I'm probably not the guy for the job. But, you know, I appreciate you calling me, man. Real nice. But you could, could you find somebody else? And God overcomes his lies and reveals to him, hey, hey, no, 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 you're my man. You're the guy. And finally he relents. But Moses does not become this man of God right away. His journey is a subtle path. It is a progressive step. When you and I get saved, guess what? We're not super Christian when we get saved. How many just figured that out the day after you were saved? <laughs> right? You get punched in the face, the devil's like, what am I? And you're like, dang, man, this is kind of hard. Wow. Goodness gracious, this flesh doesn't just want to give up. And what we find is, we find that guiding hand of God working in Moses' life. And over time, gradually, he becomes more and more godly. More and more does his path look like God's path instead of his own path. And that's the same thing that happens to us. And if we think about the guiding hand of God in his life, and you think back to your own story, how many of us can look back into our life and see the guiding hand of God Amen. time and time again, Amen. patiently working in our life to guide us where He's trying to get us. Amen. And what we find here is God's trying to guide the people back into that fellowship with God. The Holy of Holies is where the intimacy is with God. That's where the mercy seat is. That's where that high priest would go in once a year, the Day of Atonement, man, and he would that close fellowship with God. And that's what God wants for us, man. It's incredible. But as our Christians, many of us, we may start off like Moses. We may struggle. But one of the things we got to learn is just to be obedient. In the beginning, Moses was not faithful. He was just obedient. He just did what he was told. He's like, look, I don't even think this is going to happen. Every time he went to before Pharaoh, he was like, oh, did you see what happened? He said he was going to let him go. And God was like, I told you that it was going to be 10 of these times you were going to try, and he was never going to let him go until the last one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Because every time, he was just he was like, look, I'm just supposed to do this. I'm just supposed to do this. And what happens is finally he starts to become more and more this man of God because guess what? He was to lead others. And guess what your life is supposed to do? Lead others. We're supposed to impact this world. If it was about just you being close to God and God saved you just so that you could work on your own personal relationship so you could be super, super godly and just have this wonderful knowledge of the Bible, why wouldn't God just kill you when He saved you and take you up to heaven and give you that right away? No, He leaves you here because guess what? There's a job to do. There's a lost world that needs to be reached and our life is supposed to speak into them. 
But we think about this in Psalm 104, verse 5. We're trying to get closer to Him. We're trying to seek Him. It says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving, not by coincidence, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. The outer court. It is the first step for those that are seeking that sanctification and that separation from God, that holy walk with Him. And man, I'm telling you, at the beginning of our Christian life, when you got saved, guess what? You were at the altar. You were there, man. You got saved. You're on the lap of God, man. You say, yeah, He saved you. He's wiped away all of your sin. And man, you're like, boom. How many of us remember what it was like that when you got saved, you're just like, oh. you remember what it's like when you go, man, you know what? Man, I'm staying here. This is awesome, dude. This feels so good. Man, God, I can feel His presence in my life. This closeness is just so amazing. I'm never going to let this go. I'm going to stay sanctified with God and I'm going to live for Him every day, man. I'm never going to let this go. This is me. From here on out, this is me. We were in the Holy of Holies. But then what happens? We start to become a little bit complacent. Right? We're in the Holy of Holies. Next thing you know, we stop focusing on our gratitude for our salvation. We start to take it for granted. We stop being thankful for the things in our life. And we just expect them. Well, I'm a Christian now. Life should be easy. I just got to worry about me. That's really what this is all about because that's what the world tells us. And what happens is little by little, our heart wanders, our mind wanders, our walk changes. I mean, we're still, we're still in, the, in the holy place. And we're just on this side of the veil. Yeah, I know God's on that side of the veil. But see, right here, there's the altar of incense. Remember, we stood the altar of incense. That's a picture of prayer. And we're at the prayer, man. We're there praying. God's, we're close to God. He's just on the other side of the veil. I mean, I'm still walking with the Lord, for goodness sakes. Look at my sanctification. Compared to the rest of the world, I'm killing it, man. I'm at the altar of incense. And, you know, I'm praying. And then I shift over to the table of showbread, that picture of the Word of God, the bread of life, man. And I'm eating. And, and there's the light over to my left, man. There's the candlestick, that light of the Spirit of God, a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And that light is impacting my life, and I can see it and feel it and embrace it. But what happens over time is eventually my prayers, they start to become kind of hollow. And they become kind of forced. And when I'm at the Word, I read, but I'm not really nourished. I just kind of do it because I'm supposed to. And the light of the Lord that used to be so glorious to me as I'm walking backwards towards the door of the tabernacle and as I step through the curtain of the holy place, the sunlight hits me in the face and the world starts to swell and I smell the smells of the world. I can no longer feel the effect of the Holy Spirit of God. I feel isolated from it. I feel separated from it. And if I'm not careful, I'll get so comfortable in that outer court that before I know it, I'll be standing outside of the doors of the court in the world, in the filthiness of the world because I consciously took my eyes off of the Lord and I followed my flesh and my flesh led me right out into the world and I'm in all the filth of that thing. Man, if that's you today and you're looking at the tabernacle from the outside and you're in the midst of the dirt and the filth, you don't have to stay there. See, the good news is this. God wants us in the holy place. He wants us in the most holy. God desires a close walk with us. See, we're not out there because God doesn't want to be with us. We're out there because we chose to be. We take our eyes off of the things of God. We make the priority, the world, our priority. And we find ourselves outside. And what you need to realize is the fact that that outer court is a place for killing. There's an altar in there. It's where things are supposed to die. It's the first step of sanctification or it's the last step of worldliness. Because if you started at the altar of God and you've walked your way out, you can stay out in the world if you choose to. Now, will you lose your salvation? No, can't do that. But can you lose your sanctification? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Our world is ripe with people that have no understanding what sanctification even means. 
They don't understand what it means to separate themselves from the world. They embrace the world fully. They tattoo themselves with Christianity. They put stickers all over their car, but their lifestyle says nothing of him. The Bible says, by their fruits, you shall know them. That means I can look at the outside of their life and the way they live and what their life gives off, and I can judge who they are. And all these folks out there that claim to be Christians but have no sanctification in their life. Now, are you, and, and people go, wait, Pastor, you're telling people can, can fall away from God like that? Oh, yeah. It happens all the time. All the time. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, listen to this. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Right? This is talking about the, Lord, the Lord's return. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, talking about the revelation of the Antichrist. But it's, there's, a, there's something happening in the world which is a falling away. And there are people that argue that that falling away is happening right now. You look at the downfall of our society morally. Think about that. Where we were 50 years ago and where we are today. What is incredible is that we're, if right now in our society, if we do not embrace sinful things, you and I are considered to be hateful. We're considered to be evil. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. We would be called intolerant if I don't fully embrace a sinful lifestyle. Standing for what's godly is wrong, and standing for what's ungodly is right. It is amazing what the devil has done to twist people's perspective. And the problem is, if we're not firmly keeping our eyes on the Lord, and I'm outside... Guess what will happen? That same mindset will poison me. And my heart will change. And the things that used to be vile to me, I can suddenly say, you know what, it's not so bad. I guess I can accept it somewhat. I mean, I don't want to be intolerant. And what happens is we suddenly start to want to look like the world. And we're going to look at his example in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, actually, the life of Solomon. And as we look at this life of Solomon, I want you to pay attention. Solomon was the wisest man in the world. His dad was David. A man after God's own heart, man. He had the lineage. He had everything he needed to succeed. Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 through 5. God's warning to the Israelites. And the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee. He's talking about when you go into Canaan. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them. And he says, nor show mercy unto them. You're to have nothing to do with the pagan world. Verse 3. Neither shalt thou make marriage with them. Thy daughter shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from, from following me. Listen to this. That, and that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy them suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. This is what you should do. Don't embrace the world. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. What you and I might say was, they would say, do have nothing to do with the world. Do not embrace it. Separate yourself from it. Be sanctified. Jesus describes it when he talks about the parable of the sower. Listen to what he says about this kind of mindset. Mark 4, 19. Jesus says this, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other, thi of, of other things enter in. We let them into our life. And what do they do? They choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Suddenly what I used to hear, what I used to read, used to change my heart and motivate me to change my life, now runs off me like water off a duck's back. No impact whatsoever because the cares of the world have filled the void. And Solomon did not heed the warning. 1 Kings 11 verses 1 through 4. Here's the downfall of Solomon. But King Solomon loved many strange women. You want to know the strange women? Go to Proverbs 7. It gives you a full description of who that is. An actual picture of who that is in Revelations. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidians, and the Hittites. All the ites, right? Verse 2. Of the nations concerning which the Lord, listen to this, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, this is what I told you, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And look at the very last part. Solomon clave unto these in love. We might say it this way. Solomon loved the world. Solomon loved the world. What does 1 John say about that? It says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, not of the Father, but is of the world. Right? He says, this is the world. And what's the result of loving the world? Well, let's take a look at Solomon for a little example. Verse 3. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. Well, dude, if you're going to do it, may as well do it right. The guy jumped in with both feet. Let's just say that. And his wives, look, his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon started out really good, man. He really did. First half of his life, he was killing it. Second half was an absolute disaster. And it got so bad when you read a little bit further in that first Kings, you realize that Solomon turned his heart to, to Moloch, right? Moloch was a god that only received one type of sacrifice, human children. Solomon fell so far that he was making human sacrifices. Children burned at a brazen altar. And we go, man, could that really happen? He was the wisest man alive. Well, see, the problem wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his intelligence. It was his heart. It was his heart. What did it say? Solomon clave unto these in love. Colossians 3, verse 1, 2 says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth. Because if we don't, if we don't set our affection above on things above, what will happen is our hearts will be drawn to the world. And before we know it, we're going to find ourselves in the outer court. And then we'll find ourselves standing outside the tabernacle, covered in the filth. No, 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 no. We're not going to lose our salvation. But bottom line is this. That sanctification will be horribly affected. Our separation from the world will be destroyed. Our testimony will be destroyed. And how in the world are we going to reach out to somebody and tell them the goodness of the God when we don't live it ourselves? They can't even see it in us. And if that's you, man, if you are outside right now, and you feel unworthy, you feel unloved, you feel unwanted, you feel as if you don't deserve God's love, let me just tell you, man, He loves you right where you are. He desires a relationship with you no matter where you are, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter what choices you've made, how far you've fallen, it does not matter. Because the, gods of, the same God of love is loving and reaching out to us as we speak. He wants us in that Holy of Holies, man. He wants us to remember and be with Him, closely with Him, to dwell with Him, as the Bible tells us that was the purpose, to dwell with us. So understand, no matter where we are, no matter how broken we might be, God is the restorer. The restorer. How many of us can raise our hands of coming from brokenness and being restored? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. It's the love of the Lord, man. And if you're in the midst of the wilderness and you're outside of the gate, man, change your direction. Start heading back. How do we get there? Follow the instructions. Follow the roadmap. God will guide us. Start leading. Start going to God instead of away from Him. And approach that gate. Listen to this, verse 19. And their pillars were four, and their sockets of brass four, their hooks of silver, and the overlay of their chapters, and their fillets of silver. This gate screams of the power of redemption, the war against judgment and the symbols that are symbolized in these brass sockets. And when we come out of the world into this place that is set apart to honor God, what are we doing? When we enter in, we are, set, we are simply signifying that we are separating ourselves from our fleshly lusts. We are stepping outside of the world and its influence. We're heading towards an intimate relationship with God. We're heading to the tabernacle. We're heading into that holy of holies. And see, it's by God's mercy alone that we even get to do this. We don't deserve God's love. Yet in Psalm 100 verse 5 says this, For the Lord is good. Boy, that's putting it mildly. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. Us. We're 1,500 years. We're, we're, no, we're 2,500 years later. And here we are, the same mercy, the same love. Amen. God wants an abundant life for us if we'll stop living for ourselves and start living for Him. 
Verse 20 says this, And all the pins of the tabernacle and of the court round about were of brass. So there's pins. These are the, these are the stakes that hold this thing down. There's ropes tying to the ground. And everywhere they, things, they meet the earth, it is going to be judgment. This is a place of judgment. And it's important because guess what? Judgment is something that we need in our own lives. We judge our own hearts. We look into ourselves. We judge our motives. We judge our desires. We judge our very lives. And we look at what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And what happens is we've now into, the inner, into this outer court. We need to go further. We've stepped through the gate, but what do we do now? Next, we go to that, that altar, that altar of sacrifice. And what do we do? We kill this flesh. The Bible says to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him. We're supposed to kill that flesh, those lustful desires. Kill them that we might live for the Lord. And when we leave that altar, what do we do? We walk a little further. And as we get further on, we come to the brazen labor. What's the labor there for? It's to wash. Man, I've just gone and I've just killed that flesh and I've still got residue on me. I've got junk on me from the world. And I go to that labor and that labor pictures two things. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ for the lost person that comes and says, you know what? I'm filthy with the sin of the world. God says, you know what? I will wash you clean. That living water. And then it pictures for the believer. It pictures the Bible. The washing of the water of the Word. I come there and I've messed my life up. I've gotten off track. And God says, look, come in here. Kill that flesh. Come to the labor and be cleansed, man. Wash off all that junk to the washing of the water of the Word. And then when you're clean, guess where you get to go? Oh, man, well, there's the tabernacle right in front of me. And I leave the labor and I walk right through the, through the door of the tabernacle. And what is the first thing that strikes me, what is it? The light. The light of God, man. It warms my heart. It touches my mind. It changes my perspective. Suddenly, I start to see things differently. I make my way over to that table of showbread, man, to the Word of God, and I sit and I nourish myself spiritually, and I eat, and God feeds me. And I'm going from broken to being restored, and God's using the parts of Himself. And then I take a step closer to the altar. Now I'm at the altar of incense. Man, I'm praying to God, but now all of a sudden my prayers have got power and it's got influence and it's got strength and it's filled with God. And when I step from that altar and I walk through the veil that was torn from the top to the bottom when Jesus Christ died, that veil gives me access to the Father and I step through and there's the Ark of the Covenant, the love of God. And when I walk in there, my father gathers me up in his arms. And he whispers in our ear, Welcome home, child. Welcome home. I've missed you. I've missed you. He says, Come, be ye. Holy as I am holy. Yes. Sanctification for the believer is so important. If we're to be used of the Lord, God has such an intention for our life. And it's not about survival. It's not about fighting. It's not about social justice. It's about living a life that brings glory to the Father and reaches the hearts of the broken world. Someone cared about us to tell us the truth. We have to be willing to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the power of the word. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to my heart. If no one else got anything from the message, God, I know you, you dealt with me very much so. So, God, I thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that, Father, you help us. Help us to evaluate our lives. Help us to judge our own hearts. Help us to see where we stand in regards to the tabernacle. Are we in the world? Are we in the outer court? Are we in the holy place? Are we in your arms, in the holy of holies? God, help us to check our own hearts. Help us to search where we are. If you're outside, God's calling you to come back. He's waiting on you there. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. I'm in the wilderness. I'm surrounded with chaos and fear, and I don't know what to do. Guys, 19 years ago, that's who I was. 19 years ago, I did not know where to turn, but God offered me a lifeline through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you say, you know, I do not know. If this was my last day on earth, I do not know where I will go. 
I want to go to heaven. I want to have a relationship with God, but I don't know. Guys, it's not about religion. It's not about believing in God, because trust me, the devil believes that God is real. He has no doubt about it. You can believe God's real and not give Him your heart. The demons tremble in the presence of God in an emotional reaction to the presence of the Lord, and they are not saved. Salvation is a matter of the heart. We surrender our heart to Him. And as He's calling out to you today, wherever you are, watching this recorded, wherever it may be, as God's calling you, all you need to do is respond. He said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise from the God of the universe. We understand that we're lost because we do not have a way of saving ourselves. We're in trouble. We're in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. Jesus came and paid the price for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And it's that love that He extends to us today. And when we choose to receive it, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, I know I'm the problem. And I understand that you are the only solution. And by faith, I'm receiving you as my Savior. And the moment that you do that, Jesus says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. So if you're here today and you say, you know, I've never received that gift. I've been religious all my life. I believed in God, but there's never been a time in my life when I've consciously received the gift of God. Salvation. I'm going to give you that opportunity to now. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive that gift, you'll have that option right now in your seat. This is between you and God. It has nothing to do with me. As He speaks to your heart, all you need to do is respond. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It is not a magic prayer. This is not a ceremony. There's nothing to do with that. God is listening to our hearts. And if with your heart you will call out to Him, He will save you right where you are and change your forever. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Him, repeat after me. In your heart and mind, Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to forgive me of my sins. Lord, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. For you to come into my heart, come into my life, and save me. Lord, I'm trusting you for my forever. And I love you. Thank you for loving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.